What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. Today I have a nutritionist, Mary Ruddick, on the podcast. I've been listening to Mary for the last few months and I just love what she has to say. She's been on a very inspiring healing journey herself and now seems quite devoted in learning more and how to use what she's learned to help others on their own healing journey. So I really applaud her for her work. I'm grateful that she's doing what she's doing and I'm really grateful that she's sharing some of her wisdom with us today. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Mary Ruddick, thank you for joining the Mindful Movement podcast today. For the listeners out there, this is Mary Ruddock. She is the Sherlock Holmes of health, from what I hear. She is a nutritionist I've been following a little bit lately, and she has me captivated with the information she's been putting out there. Mary, please say hello to the Mindful Movement audience. Uh, thank you all so much for having me. I'm really excited to spend some time with you all today. <laughs> Thanks. So even after just the last few months listening to a lot of your content, it's very clear that you just have a lot of wisdom to share and you share in uh, just a really beautiful way, I think, and you radiate just a tremendous energy, and it's very inviting to listen to you teach about kind of the, the do's and don'ts about nutrition and so forth. So I'm excited about helping you kind of deliver that message to our audience and for selfish reasons to learn more myself. Um, Thank you, you so much. Us, sure. <laughs> can you tell the audience a little bit how you got into nutrition and what got you to where you are now, which is, if I'm pronouncing this right, Icarus, Greece? Well, now I'm in South Africa. Oh, <laughs> I move uh -huh. around a lot, but I did okay. spend a lot of time in Icaria. And one of my residencies is in Greece. So I do have residency there and it's my landing pad. Uh, it's, it's kind of my, my home right now, I suppose you could say, but I do travel most of the time. So I, I fell into nutrition really by accident as much as one can. I, I grew up thinking I was pretty healthy, eating healthier than friends, and I was an athlete. So from a young age, I cut out things like soda and was eating salads and doing what I thought was right. 
But in my freshman year of college, I was living on a field station doing research for a marine, marine biology and marine ecology degree. And, uh, and a bunch of us on the island got a bug and my bug went to my brain and made me very sick for 12 years. I spent a lot of years in bed and a lot of years with quite severe organ damage with a, a condition now no, known as dysautonomia. And you can have mild or very severe forms, but mine was quite severe cause kidney, liver, thyroid disease, all basically disease all over the body, along with severe neuropathy. So I spent a lot of time sick. And uh, because the medical community didn't have many answers, I really dove into a lot of research. Initially, I tried, I think, what most people do, and that is uh, the advice to eat more plants, eat more variety, get the rainbow, do all these things. And so I tried that. I tried eliminating foods, and none of these things worked, and I continued to get worse and worse. I wasn't dissuaded by the fact that these things uh, weren't helping, mainly because <laughs> I didn't know of anything that would. There hadn't been any of my any cases of my condition going into true remission. And now there are, there's lots of them after me. So, so it's not hopeless for anyone out there. But, uh, but I was still just, you know, trying to support my overall health during this journey. And in that process, I learned a lot about nutrition. Mainly, I learned a lot that you can be studying it for years and be down the wrong rabbit hole, like I was, and I, I very much was. The, the plants and a lot of the foods that I was eating were actually causing significant, uh, well, they were certainly contributing to my nerve function in a negative way. And so I started experimenting and doing a lot of different diets, and I, I did them with a, a, a mild scientific uh, viewpoint in that I would give each one three to six months based on what system it was working on. So our hormonal system rebuilds every three months. So if it was a diet aimed at reversing some kind of hormonal issue, I would give it three months before I judged if it was good or bad. It's a great practice in mindfulness, That's by the hard. way. <laughs> yes. Most people jump around, like try something for a week at tops. Yes. It's not a miracle. You move on. Absolutely. And unfortunately, with so much that that really works, it's not it's not intuitive. It's very counterintuitive. And so I would, I'd give them the full amount of time. If it was a nervous system protocol, I'd give it a full six months and I could be feeling much worse during that phase, but I would just keep going and then judge it at the six month mark. So eventually, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> It was honestly pretty fun. It gave me something to do. It gave me an outlet and something to live for. So uh, although it may sound masochistic, it was actually quite fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and, and it was neat to learn different protocols. And it kept me busy when I really didn't have much to live for. So it, it was actually a, a great time for me, a very happy time for me. So but after I bedridden mm -hmm. during, you said you were bedridden yeah. for the good portion of 12 years. No, it was really four years concretely four years. that I was. So there were interspersed times within all of those years that I was. Uh, basically, the way the way my condition worked was that every once in a while I could get a leg up and attend school, but I couldn't get like a full. I couldn't get my full life back. It was it was like functioning with a flu all the time is, is kind of what it's like. And so if you've had a long flu, at some point you get tired of being in bed. And so you'll just kind of push forward. But then if you do that, then you crash. And so I had all of these waves of that. 
I never felt well and my body was never healthy during any of those 12 years, but I could get myself moving during certain periods and then I'd have a crash. And sometimes that crash would be for three months, sometimes two weeks. So I had lots of bed bound phases through the other eight years of the illness, but those four years were really um, quite serious. So how old were you during this time of your life? I was 18 to 30. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Tough, tough to manage. <laughs> I think, disaud- you know, disaud- mm-hmm. dis- dysautonomia, that's basically mm-hmm. this dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. That's right. It's a whole umbrella term. So there are tons of conditions within that. And uh, most of them are autoimmune based like mine was. But there are, like I said, very light cases, and there's very severe cases. Okay. Mm -hmm. So eventually, you found something that worked for you, obviously. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I did. Yeah, I I was very lucky. I I ended up finding something that really did work for me. And it was very powerful. It worked within a year, got me into full remission of all of my conditions. All three of my autoimmune conditions went into remission, my kidney disease, liver, thyroid, neuropathy went into remission, literally everything. And I honestly ended up much healthier post the illness than I was before, even though I was healthy going in. And that actually is down to mindfulness. Uh, To be honest, had I not had Uh, extensive practice with mindfulness and lifestyle modifications during those years that I was sick, where I wasn't getting any progress, and a really deep lesson in stoicism, I never would have made it through the hard phases of those diets, because sometimes those were very, very grueling, and the symptoms would just get horrific. So it was really more the mindfulness than the diet, I would say that healed me because had I not had that mindfulness aspect, I wouldn't have gotten through it. So what was that like diet routine that eventually, even though it took a year, Mm -hmm. which I think most people just wouldn't stick out probably, Mm -hmm. what was it that was the, the magic solution? After all. Sure. So for me, it was the GAPS diet. Uh, that stands for gut and psychology or gut and physiology diet. It was created by Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, who's a neurologist and also a nutritionist. And she had created this diet to rebuild the nervous system. Since most of my problem ultimately lied in my brain, that's why uh, my other organ function that was uh, damaged was really due to a lack of circulation of blood to the organs, along with some other other things being deregulated. But the deregulation ultimately was in the brain. And so I knew if I was going to get better, I needed to heal my nervous system in my brain. And she had this protocol for people uh, of all conditions, everything from autism to MS and uh, but nerve and immune system based and so I tried it and yeah I I feel like a year is super fast when you've been sick for for at that time 11 and also when there's there's no cure in sight uh, there's no way to get out of it it's amazingly fast and um, and it was great the food tasted good I was full Uh, there was no variety so it was boring (laughs) but again boring. But I think so often what I see in America and in many countries is that we're now going towards entertainment, food for entertainment, which although my personality loves, I'm, I'm really like more of a, an entertainment type personality. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a plain Jane <laughs> with things, whether it's uh, things to do or food, but the constant seeing of food as entertainment is a huge problem in our society, especially for our well-being. Yeah, I'm amazed. Uh, um, 
you know, I've taken some stints of some really restricted diets and mm -hmm. when it was a function of like restriction, cut this out, cut this out, mm -hmm. it was challenging. But yeah. then when the, the lens in which I looked at it through, when I tried like carnivore and got strict with that for a while, I was amazed at how much I could look forward to eating the same thing every day. Like I would have thought yes. this is going to be tough. It's going to be boring, but I loved it. I mm -hmm. never looked forward to my meal so much. And I ne like I could eat a pastured raised ribeye with like egg yolks on top, covered in salt every single day and never get tired of it. Which if you told yeah. me that like a few years ago, I would say, yeah, I love that meal maybe once a week. It, there's something strange about that, especially if you know it's nourishing and you're feeling better from it, how you could change your mindset so easily and it not be boring, like it not be boring to you. Yes. Deal with the, the connection. So I've heard mm -hmm. the term like gut brain axis. I know on your website, you allude to mm -hmm. the connection of gut health and our nervous system and our immune system yeah. so much. Maybe can you lay some context of why that relationship is there or how that's so important? I'd love to. Yeah. So many people are afraid of food restriction or restriction of any type. And it's, it's kind of a funny phenomenon that we have in the States that here we are in this place of abundance of so many things. And yet we're afraid of having too little. Whereas when I go anywhere else, like this trip I was just on in Africa, it's the opposite. <laughs> people are never afraid of having too little and yet they have much less than us. They don't have the variety. I think what you were tapping into, to with your steak experience and your carnivore experience is real human uh, intuition with your body and with your health. The intuitive movement for eating is a bit problematic because most people aren't balanced. Their microbiome, their nervous system, their hormonal system isn't balanced. And so they're rarely hearing their own body's uh, intuitive desires for food. And so when someone goes on one of those intuitive diets, they're usually going for foods that actually don't feed human cells at all. What feeds a human cell is protein and fat, and that's it. It can't use carbohydrates period. Uh, human cells cannot use them. Carbohydrates are fine to consume, but it's not nutritive. That's the difference. And so if you're having that craving, that's, that's a sign for me or to me that you're, you were getting very balanced and it's a really wonderful thing. It's, it's something I see all my clients go through. I went through that too. You become a different person as you start to shift your microbiome, you kind of rebuild that nervous system. And so the person that comes in uh, starting out full of fear, worried about restriction, worried about a bounce back and binge fests and all these kinds of things fully fades away by day 30, 60, 90. Now suddenly they want different foods. They want the steak uh, or maybe something else if they're on a different diet, but they, they're not anxious about food anymore. And that comes down to the microbiome and the nervous system, which you're asking about. So the bulk of our nervous system, the bulk of where we make our feel good chemicals is within our gut lining. And it's only one cell away from the food that we eat. 
it's really nourished by the foods that we eat as well. So the foods that rebuild the nervous system, as funny as that sounds, that it has a food, are, are your saturated fat and your cholesterol. So if you're on a low saturated fat, a low cholesterol diet, like most of us were raised on, you're not getting the proper nourishment for that system. So that system is directly connected through the vagus nerve up to the brain. And in fact, really more of your nervous system is in your gut than is in your brain, which is a bit crazy to think about but they're directly connected. And many things we don't uh, think about get in the way of that communication. So for instance, let's say you have a great gut lining and your microbiome is healthy and you are making all that serotonin in your stomach. It can't get up to your brain if you're slouched over in a poor posture all day. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it actually turns off the communication. So you have to have very good posture for your serotonin to be produced uh, or get to the brain. Serotonin is primarily produced in the intestines. It is. Even though we feel that in our head as a as a feel good, happy neurotransmitter. That's correct. Yeah, most of the feel good chemicals are actually produced in our digestive system. An exception would be dopamine, but dopamine is directly affected by light and from the eyes. And so it it makes sense that it's in the brain instead of in the stomach. Interesting. So Mm -hmm. when we make serotonin in the stomach, does it travel to the brain or correct? Yeah, that's what it does. So it travels to the brain and throughout the, the entire nervous system. Okay, so it circulates mm-hmm. in the bloodstream and crosses the mm-hmm. blood brain barrier, I guess, or? It goes up the vagus nerve. It goes is up what the it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that, I guess, we need also, from what I understand, for like smooth muscle contraction. So, that's, we need that for motility and all these functions of digestion, too. So, if you're yes. not making enough of that, not only do you not feel good in your brain, but mm-hmm. things don't work below physically system well there's more to it actually so when your serotonin is low it doesn't always present as depression in fact it often doesn't it could present as low willpower so if you're someone who keeps saying i'm going to do this tomorrow i'm going to get up early i'm going to meditate i'm going to go for a jog but you're never successful you could be dealing with low serotonin Uh, that's very common so low willpower is one headaches are also very common so a lot of the migraine cases i see are actually just low serotonin that will trigger a migraine Uh, a lot of hormonal issues for women are low serotonin as well. And each of these hormones has uh, multiple roles in the body. I think melatonin is one of the best examples. We think of melatonin as the sleep hormone, but it's actually the master of the entire enteric nervous system. It's called the migratory motor complex. That's our nervous system within the gut lining that we keep referring to. That's about, yeah, that's about uh, 70%, 60 to 70% of your nervous system. Uh, The melatonin is ruling that. And now we are not producing melatonin well, because any amount of light coming in from the streets, through the curtains, through the blinds, any amount of electronic use at at night that has a light, most of our house lights inside, all of that gets in the way of our own body's ability to make serotonin, or sorry, melatonin. And then if we can't make the melatonin properly at night, we won't make the proper amount of serotonin in the morning. And then we won't be bursting out of bed with energy. We'll be feeling tired, groggy, hitting that snooze button. Hmm. (laughs) That's fascinating. So I I have a question for you. So I, um, I, 
for a while, I guess I've been looking at trying to learn about nutrition in general. And I've tried like a bunch of different diets along the way, the vegan thing, the keto thing, the carnivore thing. And when I, I lost my health for a while, um, the audience has heard this many times, but got Lyme disease in 17 and really went on like a, a tough um, multi-year journey. And in that time, I really upped my like dives into nutrition and trying to relate the connection of nutrition to physiology, kind of lose the ideology and just like what's actually happening, learn about mechanism of action and tried to make progress. And in that process, I learned, I read so many books on nutrition, looked at so many studies and you hear this term blue zone reference so many times in these books on food. And some of them have a ton of great information. They're well-written. Um, they're very useful. Uh, authors with good intentions and so forth. But there was something I heard you recently talk about in your travels to Greece that was very eye-opening because you went to one of these so-called blue zones, which for the listeners are basically areas, a handful of areas in the world where people just live longer than everybody else. And they've been studied to death uh, to try to find out what makes them live so long. And one of the common themes that always gets expressed through the literature is how they're primarily like plant-based diets. And I've been like wrestling with that idea and trying to reconcile it with what I experience personally when I eat more plants, which I like to eat, but I've kind of stopped lying to myself about, you know, my outcomes based on them. Um, Cause I generally don't feel good when I eat a lot of plant-based stuff. And then you said you got to one of these blue zones and found a totally different story than what we've been told. Yes. And that was shocking. Can you enlighten us with that story a little bit? I'd be happy to. So one of the things I do, I spend a bulk of my time traveling and going to other countries and regions and studying traditional diets where they still exist. So this year alone, I've been to, I don't know, despite coronavirus, <laughs> a good handful of places. I was just with uh, nine different tribes in Tanzania and in Uganda. And before that, I was in Iguria in the blue zone of Greece. So this region of Greece, I, I've read about, and I you know, you start to get an eye the more you get into this. So I, I should preface for your audience and those that don't know me, I, I work with over 41 different medical diets. Uh, I'm definitely not a hammer and a nail type of person, but I, I do always have an ancestral eye on anything that I work with. So if there's not an ancestral basis, I don't teach it. And I had that rule for myself when I was healing as well. So when I teach different diets, like my, my maintenance diet is very much like the, the chaga traditional village diet in Tanzania. And the carnivore diet is, is the Russian tribe or the, the Maasai, right? And these kind of things. So, so there's always an ancestral basis for these, and many of them can be used and combined to benefit one. But because of this interest in history and ancestral health, I've really researched to death <laughs> traditional foods. And when I stumbled upon this blue zone idea, I knew it didn't read right. I certainly didn't think, and I still don't think it was an intentional um, misperception uh, that was portrayed. But what happens is, is that people with a non-medical background or a non-nutritional background go to a region and they don't really know what they're looking at. Very small differences with foods can make a huge 
huge, huge difference on health. So uh, for instance, in, in Greece, in Icaria, they are very seasonal. So if someone goes in say, July, you're going to get a completely different diet than you do in January. And it's going to look wildly different. <laughs> They're going to have very different foods, different combinations, different macros, all these kinds of things. But just what they are sourcing everything locally. I yeah. And when I say locally, it's within a mile. They don't even go usually that far. So the Icarians in particular are very interesting. And part of that goes into their political history. You know, when the communist regime was not successful in taking over Greece uh, several decades ago, the head communists fled to Icaria and established settlements there. And so most of the island is still very communist. They had a big communist festival while I was there. And what that means for people that aren't, aren't familiar with the whole ideology is that you usually take full responsibility for yourself, or at least that's the idea and everything is shared. It's not like a, a, you know, the idea of it is that it's not monetary. And so as such, it wouldn't be surprising to find out that Icaria is not tourism related. <laughs> I mean, it is just not the place for tourism. There aren't shops, there aren't lots of hotels. There's a couple, but it's mainly for Greeks coming to go surfing. It's the one island where you can go surfing. So it's not the normal Greek island where you go and you have a great vacation. You can have a wonderful time there, but it, it's very much like going to a small village somewhere and, and you're being kind of welcomed in. So with the communist ideals of the, of the island, they also tend to do everything themselves, right? A very idealistic view, romantic view of communism. So they all have their own little farms and the farm will have a few goats, uh, sheep, chickens, these kind of things, and then lots of vegetables that they're growing during the growing season. But, uh, but they, you know, they're certainly not plant-based. And I have to say, I went during the highest plant season. I spent the summer there. And it was more like maybe 30, 30% of their diet was plant. They ate surprisingly a lot of fat. And that's something that Dan Buhner, the creator of the Blue Zone book, did point out, although it wasn't highlighted for some reason, that about 60% of their diet was fat. And that was without taking into account all their meat consumption or dairy consumption. So it's actually probably higher. I wouldn't say, yeah, it's actually higher. Fat without including the fat without including or dairy. Yeah. 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 Because in the survey, they didn't ask about the, the meats that they eat. That's so the really meat that fat diet then. It's a really high fat diet and all the Greek diets are very high fat. I wouldn't call them ketogenic though, because they also eat carbohydrates. So um, especially mainland Greece will do rice and uh, breads and things like that. Icaria, they do some bread, although I will say it mostly sat on the tables and I only saw two bakeries the whole time I was there, but there is bread. There's quite a bit of wine. Uh, they do like beets and carrots and they're not, you know, they're just eating the way that their parents ate. So they're not doing any of this intentionally. They're just maintaining their health. And it very much reinforced what I've been seeing and what I hope I continue to see in my research. And that is that when people live on a diet on, in their region, uh, so very localized and of non-imported foods, and I mean non-imported from 500 years ago, they seem to maintain just excellent health and live very well into old age. And it's more important uh, to live that way mm -hmm. based on where you live now or mm -hmm relative I to do. your ancestry. I think it's far more important to live based on where you are now than your ancestry.
<laughs> okay. So even if someone yeah. has equatorial descent that has maybe more plant matter because they had it year round, if they live elsewhere, they live in Russia, over time, they're better off just staying local to where they are. Yes, and I'll tell you why. Uh, some of that comes down to deuterium and some goes down to uh, plant toxins and how we get rid of those. So our human bodies can handle a good amount of toxins pretty well. We have great detox organs and systems. We don't have to go on detox cleanses to get rid of these things. Uh, we've got our kidneys, our liver, our skin, and our colon. All of those really help get rid of toxins. When people are in a region around the equator, it could be, or a hot region, a sunny region like India or where I just was, you can get away with eating a lot more plants than you can in a place say like Ireland or Scotland or Canada, because when you've got the sun coming down on your skin, uh, the sun touches your skin and it clears deuterium from the cells. Deuterium for all of you out there that don't remember from chemistry, <laughs> from the elemental table really, is just a, a heavy water is its nickname. And it's not a problem to have this in our bodies. It's normal, but it comes with plant consumption. So especially high plant consumption, starchy plant consumption, we accumulate a lot of deuterium from those food items. And in regions that get a lot of sun, the sun touches our skin and clears the deuterium from our cell we're not really harmed. But if we're not getting sun on our skin and we're eating a lot of plants, uh, that's problematic. And so you'll notice, yeah, I think it's fascinating. So you'll notice the farther you get into cloudy regions, they have a very short growing season. And what that does is it allows the body to get on top of those plant toxins. So if you're eating spinach for the one month or the three months max that it's gonna be growing, you've then got nine months to clear those oxalates out of your body. So your body doesn't get bogged down by toxicity. Whereas if you're artificially growing things as we are now and shipping things in and eating things year-round much more problematic mm. right and especially if you're not getting sunshine mm -hmm. so um taking a few steps back where sure. that's first of all that's fascinating i keep learning more and more like how much we need the sun and all the functions yeah. in our body that are relying on it which makes sense if you zoom out and think of how long we've been exposed to it but yes. um back to that whole blue zone idea where did they go wrong with what people were actually eating and then what we were told they were eating. Yes, so many places. So um, one with Icaria in particular, there, there's a huge language barrier with the Greek language and the English language. There are, I, I forget the number right now, but there's an enormous, there's so many more Greek words than there are with English. And I, I think that's part of why they're known as the philosophers. They can really articulate their thought much better with their vocabulary because it's so dense. And one of the issues with that is that if you come in as a non-Greek speaker, you can ask a question and think you're getting an answer to something, but you're getting a totally different answer. So for instance, in Greece, if you uh, tell someone that you don't eat meat, to them that only meats means the cow, that only means beef. That's it. So they're going to serve you lamb and chicken and goat and fish and everything else. They're not going to take that as vegetarian. And so unfortunately, 
what they put on the questionnaire for these uh, Icareans was how much red meat do you eat in a week? And it wasn't the right question to ask because fascinating. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> eat red meat. Yeah, and they, Even they, they don't. Eat red meat every day. Yeah. Yeah, they eat uh, they eat goats and lamb every day. And so if they're funny. by the ocean, they eat fish. So uh, so yeah, they just asked the wrong question, unfortunately, and especially for that island, you would get a different answer in mainland Greece, but that island isn't meant for, for cattle. Uh, it's not the right kind of climate and it's not the right topography. It's the right topography for sheep and goats and chickens. And so that's what they raise there, not because it's healthier, but because that's what they have. And so they really don't eat red meat often, maybe once, twice a week. And to be honest, I think that's very generous. I think they were um, overstating that fact. And then also on the questionnaire, they didn't ask about dairy at all. And they eat dairy on a daily basis. They all make their own cheese. Every household I went into uh, was making their own cheese. They serve it as an appetizer before each meal, a big old block. They're all very proud of their own. So uh, so they've really missed the mark when asking people what they were eating. I find this fascinating mm -hmm. because that message has been like, beaten in us for years from so many different angles yes it just makes you wonder i mean i've seen i'm on um i don't think i've mentioned this on the podcast but i'm on the institutional review board for the maryland university integrated health a local university mm -hmm. near where i live and i'm like the so for those that don't understand anytime you do uh research on like human subjects you need because of all the unethical things in the past, they've made rules where it needs to pass what's called an institutional review board, where um, people discuss kind of the ethics around the study. Like, so every institutional review board needs a community representative that's not like a research scientist, that's not biased, that, does ha that has no incentive on getting the study accomplished. They're just there to kind of represent the public to make sure people aren't like abusing innocent people in the name of getting their scientific data. But one thing I've noticed being on this board is that it's really hard to do good science. And it's really yes. expensive. And granted, this is like a university. They don't have a lot of money to do studies, but in every one of our meetings, everybody's kind of looking at these studies that they're and thinking like how flawed they are because yeah. it's freaking impossible to put together a good study, which dramatically reduces kind of the relevance and usefulness of the outcome, like the data points that the study is. It's really hard. And we hear like the word, like people don't even know what the word science means anymore, the way it's thrown yes. around, where you're trying to like disprove a hypothesis to in turn prove yourself not really right, but just to find something that could be useful. And yes. um, it's really hard to do. So if there's not like a really big carrot out there dangling to make it worth investing an insane amount of money, chances are it's not very good science because in theory, you could create like good studies, but in application, it's really unrealistic to like get these things carried out. But this it really is a is. really interesting like angle of the flaw in studies, this language barrier, how <laughs> it would be like so bad. I could just see like 
you know, these all these old people sitting around in Greece saying, yeah, we don't need any red meat with like red meat on their plate at the time. Yes, yes. No, it's really true. I've, I've yet to see a study that's that's really done well. And part of that is what exactly what you just said. You know, scientific studies, the model was not designed for something with so many factors as diet. And with diet, you have so many factors going in that the model doesn't really work. And so what we end up with are hypotheses or theories. And I think we've often lost what, what the true definition of those things are. So many times when a uh, uh, an idea is brought about like the cholesterol theory, it's always brought with theory, but it's actually not a theory. It would be a hypothesis by definition, right? So any idea that you propose or like what I'm doing right now is a hypothesis with my research is I'm going around and looking at places and seeing if there are uh, uh, any situations that disprove it. And if there's multiple things that disprove it, then it's at a hypothesis. It's only a theory if nothing is disproving that idea, right? And that's not what we had with cholesterol or lots of the dietary things, but they're kind of sold as, as, um, as truth until proven otherwise, even when they're often proven otherwise from the get-go. So yeah, there's this whole issue with studies. I, I spend a lot of time uh, going through these, honestly, because a lot of people will bring them to my practice and they'll be like, oh, my husband's really worried. This thing just came out. Or like, you know, what do you think about this study that just came out? And when you look at them, uh, usually the title does not actually match what was happening in the study. So for instance, maybe you'll see um, the headline will be something about a high fat diet, but in the study, it's high fat plus high sugar and it's hydrogenated fats, which we all know is inflammatory plus sugar, or it's a study done with very processed foods. Like uh, some of the first ketogenic studies done back in the day with children were done with saltines and canola oil. That's not going to be healthy for anyone, <laughs> especially in high amounts. So yeah, there's, there's always issues. I think that there's no reason to stop trying and, and to stop putting them together to give us a picture. But I think our, our rigid ideals of like, this is dogma because this was studied needs to be uh, relaxed quite a bit because this is a very difficult thing to study properly. Yeah. And it's clearly mm -hmm. now nuanced. You said you work yeah. with 41 different medical based diets. I didn't know there I were do. so many. I know there are, there's more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I assume that a lot of them share a lot of common characteristics. I would, I would think there's only so many types of food, but mm -hmm. um, what are the, some of the like go-tos that you find maybe that you use most common for most people, or I guess like what draws someone to come work with you? I looked at your, sure. your site for a while and it's obviously not the typical site of a, you know, nutritionist or just, um, you know, health-based um, hmm, platform. I mean, it's, it's very unique, it's very intriguing. What do people usually find themselves in to get to the point where they come to see you? My guess is you're usually, they're not, not their first stop. 
No, I'm usually the last, you know, they've usually tried so many things before finding me. So I tend to work with the uh, strangest of the strange and the unusual and the unsolvable. <laughs> and I love it because each person is like solving a puzzle. And uh, so often when they're speaking to me, they'll say something small that will put us down in the right direction. So yeah, I get, I get the unusual conditions and I, I excel in that area because I had one. I had a really rare condition and it was full body. So I, I, you know, I think so often in stoicism, they always teach that, uh, uh, the fire is good, right? The fire turns everything into good. And so any kind of obstacle is actually a good thing. It's fuel for the fire. And, uh, and I really find that, uh, that if someone hasn't been able to find the issue that can often give you the information uh, that you need to figure out what's going on with them and what they need to do to take the next step. So I do, I work with the very unusual cases. I also get the run of the mill weight loss sometimes, which is always lovely, <laughs> but it's rare. Uh, I'm more, yes, yes, so nice. I usually get the uh, Lyme disease, the lots of neuropathy, lots of dysautonomia, lots of MS, lots of cancer, all those kinds of things. So usually the people I'm working with are are very, very ill. And then is there a general starting place for those folks that you go to first? As far as it's different for each person to be perfectly honest. So it depends on what I'm seeing and what I think they might need. I would say there's a few PhD diets that I, I call them PhD diets. Those are like the ones you pull out for the real whammies, right? The real difficult conditions. Uh, one is the carnivore diet. Definitely. Uh, I used to just use that for schizophrenia. In fact, it's been used for schizophrenia for, for really hundreds of years in some regions of the okay. world very successfully. Yeah. It's great for mental mental health. Um, only more recently has it been discovered how wonderful that diet is for many other conditions like MCAT and histamine disorder, long COVID, it's fantastic for. So um, yeah, lots of different conditions. So I'll go with carnivore if I suspect histamine issues, especially the genetic form like MCAT. Uh, and I'll also use it for other conditions as well. Like one of my clients actually wasn't uh, ill at all. He was just severely obese. He was about 450 pounds. And and he's an old, like, uh, uh, just like an old traditional man. He likes his steak. And so that's what I gave him. I was like, let's just do steak. And he lost all his weight and he was really happy on the diet. So I'll sometimes do it when it, there's not a need to do something so severe just to have something simple. And then a GAPS intro is definitely something I use a lot. And I'll combine that. And carnivore is technically GAPS as well. But I'll combine, combine GAPS intro uh, often with ketosis, not always, but often. And I'll always take out the leptins. I'll minimize the oxalates and these kind of things as well. So I would say those are probably the, the real like... Uh, hardball diets that I would start people with, but I, I tend to not start people with gaps or go to gaps if I don't have to, because it's, it's much more difficult emotionally to get through and physically you can go through quite a, quite a bit of negative symptoms. So I only do that if I have to. I find, um, you know, I've been, I, I find like inspiration listening to people's success stories. So yes. sometimes I'll go on to, um, like uh what is it meet rx they put out yes. like pretty often little quick interviews of people that have done gone through healing with the carnivore diet and i i just find it especially if i'm like 
having trouble with my discipline, which I think if I lived alone, it'd be easy for me, but it's easier. You can't get <laughs> yes. everybody around you. And, um, so I'll like really feel inspired by hearing, you know, somebody go through, you know, this, they have this like template, I guess, of what were your symptoms? What were you eating? How did you try this diet and what did it change? And I find it kind of uplifting and it gives me hope. And then I kind of dive back in and get a little bit more disciplined for a while. And um, one thing that I've also seen as some kind of common thing where it's not all, you know, great. Like, and yeah. I wonder if I experience this myself at times where sometimes going into something that might be very positive for you can also at the same time be exposing or shining a light on some of the things you've done prior. I think oxalates are one of those big potential yes. ones where when you cut them out, cause you're trying to make positive um, change, you're, the way I guess they could be stored in your body, especially if you've had like a high oxalate diet, which a lot of people, when you go like to more of like a paleo style diet and you eliminate processed foods, you wind up eating a lot of high oxalate foods. Yes, and so many. A lot of people, like <laughs> you might not be getting rid of them as fast and there might be a genetic component to that. I don't know. I know there's a component of like your microbiome. So if you've been on like antibiotics or something, you might not be getting rid of them. They build up and then you make this change. That's a healthy change in theory, but then I guess maybe uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The body sees an opportunity once the gradient changes, like when the oxalates stop coming in to try to get rid of all the oxalates that it's been storing. And that's right. That's called dumping. And yes. And it can be brutal. It can actually be dangerous. Yeah. It can actually be dangerous. Yeah. Um, usually it's just brutal. It's very rare to have the dangerous kind, but it, it can happen. Uh, yeah. So oxalates are very different than other plant toxins and that other plant toxins, like if you eliminate lectins and there are good and bad lectins, but when I speak about them, I'm just talking about the technical toxic ones to humans. Uh, you just get better. You don't get worse, but with oxalates, it's different because you'll often and be storing them uh, throughout your life. So for oxalates, it's not genetic, it's more bacterial, whether or not you hang on to them or not, you require a couple different bacteria to help break them down. But even if you have those, if you've overfed them like oxalobacter bacteria, you can actually overfeed it to where it dies. And that's very common. And this is a bacteria that we get from our mothers. So if we weren't born via the birth canal, or if our mother didn't have that, or if we've had antibiotics, we could very likely be out of that bacteria. And so we're not breaking down the oxalates. But even if we had it in the other ones that break down oxalates, we still can only on average break down about 50 milligrams of oxalates per day. And a cup of spinach has well over 600 milligrams of oxalates. And so you can see where people get into the health sphere and they start making spinach and kale smoothies and, uh, and eating lots of salads and then lots of nut baked, uh, uh, nut flour baked goods where you start to really accumulate a ton of oxalates. And it's more problematic for those who have uh, chronic illness, because usually when you have chronic illness, you're already not detoxing things appropriately. Often phase two, phase three in the liver is, is malfunctioning and these kind of things. And so you're more likely to hang on 
for those with heavy metal issues, it's even more problematic because oxalates bind to heavy metals and keep them in the tissues. So you're more likely to bioaccumulate more of those. And then of course, oxalates attached to your electrolytes as well. So uh, most people dealing with chronic illness will, will deal with the symptoms of chronic dehydration, where you wake up with that dry mouth, you're dizzy all the time, you're lightheaded, your legs are cramping, these kind of symptoms. And that's that can be, it's not always, but that is a, a, an oxalate type symptom as well. So an oxalate mm -hmm. is what a plant actually uses yeah. to hold on to minerals. Like it. Yes, and it is also, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I'm glad you brought that up. But it, it is, uh, by definition, a toxin for us mammals. And part of it is to protect the plant from being overconsumed, right? So it's what the plant uses to protect itself, but also keep its own minerals. Gotcha. Yeah, yes. I think it's in, from all I've learned about lectins and different toxins, it seems like the most insidious one to be concerned about. Um, yeah. And, and not the easiest one to navigate because I guess there's yeah. so much individuality on how we get rid of them and how much you have, how long you've been eating them. And the thing is, like you mentioned the smoothies, like I know personally, like when I was in that phase, like that was a daily thing. So, yes. you know, if every day you're having 10 times what you can get rid of in a day, it's obviously you're building up to a, a disaster down the road. And then when you go like gluten-free and you wind up switching to like almond flour products, you're having these massive doses of things that our body can't use in our own physiology and is not really good at getting rid of. Yes. And even more than that too, is that most people give up dairy when they're doing all of this. And dairy is one of the few foods that can block oxalate absorption. So if you're eating, say, a paneer with your stir fried spinach, like they do in India, it's blocking the oxalate absorption that's from the spinach. because calcium in it and the calcium that's right. binds to the oxalate in the intestines where you want it, as opposed to the oxalate getting absorbed through the intestinal lining. That's absolutely right. And it only works with the form of calcium that's found in dairy products. It doesn't really? work with the calcium found in plant products. In Is fact, the calcium in plant products. Dairy as an appetizer at every meal in in Greece, you think? I think so. I think so. Because traditionally oxalates were not an issue in most parts of the region of the world with historical diets, with Greece as an exception. One of the surgery that surgeries that the ancient Greeks would do, uh, it's a bit awful, so I'll, I'll spare you all, but basically, <laughs> basically, uh, you can imagine a needle goes into a very sensitive region okay. to go and break up the stones. Now, kidney stones are caused by oxalate crystals most of the time. I, I'm yet to see any that aren't. Uh, and, and that's one way that they can bioaccumulate. For many people, they don't. For me, they cause kidney disease without any stones. So they can be really different in each person as to where they accumulate and what symptoms they cause. But kidney stones are common. Uh, so with that, obviously, the, the oxalate issue has been an issue in Greece for a long time for them to have that surgery 2000 years ago. Wow. But I think it was still probably pretty rare. And Greece is going to be more prone to that, because uh, it is in that belt of bread, you know, just like ancient Egypt, and the grains have a lot of oxalates as well. And then those regions have a lot, uh, a long growing season. And in Greece, you eat a lot of something called horta, which is this uh, sauteed greens. I love it. I eat it all the time. But 
uh, but if anyone individually doesn't eat the dairy, which will happen on an individual basis, right? Someone will choose not to eat dairy. They're very likely to get oxalate issues. That's interesting. Because mm -hmm. most people, when you start out on like a health journey, you don't feel good. They say get you rid of sugar, dairy. gluten, and dairy. Yes. And I, th I think it's easy to, and I, you know, I'm guilty of this too, of like not recognizing the nutrition that we were getting from that dairy. And I remember relying on this idea of like, it's kind of naive to think that we need the mammal, the milk of a mother of another mammal. Like that's silly. Mm -hmm. Why would we need that? But you know, we've been doing it for a long time. Maybe, yes. maybe there's a, a reason that they've been eating it for so long. And there are many reasons. Yeah. So dairy has uh, two different kinds of glyconutrients in it. These are long chain sugars called polysaccharides that regulate the immune system. So they keep you from going into autoimmunity and keep it from being poor immune as well. In addition, it's one of our best current sources of vitamin A, D, and K. And these are the animal-based forms we're very deficient in. Uh, vitamin A palmitate, just no one's getting into their diet anymore, which is really problematic. And as we're seeing with coronavirus and MS and other conditions, your vitamin D level is, is very essential for your health. But if you supplement with it individually, then you can get a deficiency in the K2, the K3, and of course the, the A palmitate. So there's also issues there if you're not getting it in a whole food. And dairy brings them all together at once? It does, it does, yes. Of course, a lot of the dairy that we can get these days is not great, <laughs> it's not a health food. But traditionally dairy was a health food. And I really see a difference in the communities and the tribes that I visit, in those that start to adopt some of the modern foods like a bit of corn or something like that something minor right they're not eating dessert they're not eating processed food but maybe they've brought in corn instead of sorghum or millet but as long as they're eating dairy they seem to maintain their perfect health despite that whereas the regions that don't have the dairy do not and i don't know if that's just a correlation if it has nothing to do with it but it's i'm seeing it over and over and over again and i think it may be due to those glyconutrients because those glyconutrients in the dairy which you can get from other foods but in the, in these cultures, that's where they're getting them. And those block the lectins from corn. So I think that's what's going on. But uh, loose theory on my end, <laughs> at best, more of a hypothesis. Gotcha. That's <laughs> fascinating. Well, uh, I mean, I went dairy-free for a while. And I recently um, started trying some. And I had, I had like, and you know, the smart way to do it, I think would be like, you know, have an ounce, give it a couple of days, see if you react, mm -hmm. if you don't try to, I'm an idiot. So <laughs> I have like an ounce in the morning, like, oh, nothing bad happened. And then I'm having like eight ounces by the afternoon. <laughs> um, but and you're very I human. Went, yeah, I went <laughs> too far, too fast. And, you know, I, I had some symptoms flare up. But then recently, um, I went and really focused on like the quality and I found a local yeah. farm that provides raw milk. And, um, and I hadn't even drinking milk in like years, many years. And, um, and they, you're not in where I live, you can't sell it for human consumption, which is crazy. crazy. So they have to mm -hmm. label it for pet consumption only in like quotation mm -hmm. marks. So I found this farm that does like a local drop by my house every week. So I picked some up. It's, fantastic like i can't believe how much i'm enjoying it and i'm not reacting negatively to it 
And yes. the strange thing is, I assume it has something to do with what naturally comes with this product. But as I drink this raw milk, I seem to be able to handle other dairies better. Have you yes. seen that with any of your clients? I, yes. And I experienced it myself. So I grew up not tolerating dairy. I didn't have a full-blown allergy, but I didn't tolerate it. And, uh, and when I did the GAPS diet, after the first month, you're supposed to start adding in some specific dairies. Like you start with ghee first. Usually you start um, with non-lactose things and then build to the lactose. So you start with ghee and then do four days like you were talking about, and then butter and then sour cream. And then you get to yogurt and kefir and then milk much later down the road. But, uh, but the requirement with GAPS is that you source it from a raw place that's fully grass fed. So not pasteurized dairy. And so I did that for the first time and I did great. I thrived on it and I found the same. The more of that dairy that I ate at home, the more I could eat whatever I wanted when I was out, I could eat any kind right. of terrible dairy and that comes down to lactose. So there's, there's multiple reasons why someone can have an issue with dairy. I think the most common cause in our country is that we use uh, an odd breed of cow that has a, a, a1 beta casein that is inflammatory. It's technically not good for us. And that's what most of the cows used for dairy create in our country, mainly because they produce three times more milk than the heritage breeds like Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. So Jersey and Guernsey breeds always. Yeah. I mean, our food system is a financial system. So yes, yes. Uh, but so for a lot of people, that's all it is. They can just get the Jersey, the Guernsey, these kind of breeds, avoid the Holstein and the Frisian, and they're going to be fine, even if it's pasteurized. But for people like you and I, what happened was we were raised on the very ultra pasteurized dairy. And when you eat that, it's lacking the enzymes to break it down. A raw dairy product, whether it's a yogurt, a cheese, a milk, is coming with tons of enzymes to break itself down. When you cook those off through the pasteurization process, you now have to use your body's own stores to break that food down. So you're actually digesting part of your own body and eating part of your own body to break that down. Each person is going to have a different threshold for how long they can do that before they become dairy intolerant and where they can't break it down anymore. And so if you take someone like you or I, and you give them the raw dairy products where they have all those enzymes with them, eventually they start building up their stores again. And now they can eat food, uh, cheese at restaurants and all of those kind of things. So, so that's the, the, I would say the most common that I see other than the breed of cow. But if someone out there is listening and they've gotten a really healthy source of unpasteurized dairy that's fully breastfed and A2 and all these things and still had issues, usually what you're dealing with at that point is a potassium deficiency. When you're deficient in potassium, you can't break down dairy, but that's very rare. I think I've seen it twice in my whole practice. It's Mm -hmm. such an exciting concept. Like I'm so excited to be able to have that. I don't know what it is. I mean, I think I heard at some point that dairy has a molecule that might bind to like an opioid receptor in our brain. I don't know if that's true, but it feels like it makes me happy. It feels good. It produces dopamine for us. So it helps us produce dopamine would be the more accurate way to state it. So just like chocolate does or uh, mucuna bean does. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, because we really, we, we live, no matter how healthy we try to control our life and how, how much we cultivate uh, our, 
our life into a healthy one, we are in an environment of constant dopamine uh, depletion. And so anything that helps to boost dopamine is going to be very reward-based for us, whether it's chocolate or cheese. Right. You know, from, from all your travels, are there, I've, I've heard this talked about a little bit about maybe some of the things that really allow people in these like blue zones to live longer than average is not even food related at all. And mm -hmm. it's really like the things that are other lifestyle habits that they have. Did you see that in your travels that it's more of like the way that they live more so than specifically what they eat? Cause it seems like the different mm -hmm. blue zones, they do eat different things from each other. They're not all on the same. Mm -hmm. Diet, yeah, no, they do. They definitely eat differently from each other. I don't think it's the lifestyle. I, I think it's really easy to pin it on the lifestyle. And I, you know, when I'm working with a client, I make them do just as much lifestyle as I do diet. I think it's equally, if not more important to your diet, but not with longevity. And, and I say that from my experience looking in regions where just a little bit of modern food has been brought into a genetic pool. They have a very different health profile despite the, the exact same lifestyle as their uh, genetic brothers in the next village who aren't touching the modern food. So like what, it, okay, let's say in Uganda, I was just with the Batwa, which the Batwa for, for those who haven't been, that's the pygmy, <laughs> the pygmy group, they're very, very short. And they've lived in the windy forest with the gorillas for eons, right? They're traditional hunter gatherers, really perfect health. And they've been kicked out of the forest due to the national park being uh, set up in 91. It's, it's actually really shocking. A lot of these wonderful things like national parks or humanitarian efforts actually really derail the health of the people in those regions. And the Batwa are a perfect example of that. So I got to meet a family with seven different generations still alive. The oldest member was 100. Yeah, the oldest member was a woman and she's 120. Her, her sister is still alive, her daughter and then all of her daughter's descendants. So her daughter is 91. And she's 120. <laughs> I know. Yes. And they're actually, so they're a group that does uh, mark birthdays. So a lot of places, uh, Blue Zones and other regions of the world, they don't track birthdays. Like the Maasai, they don't. They actually don't do celebrations, period, except for some, when someone goes from boy into manhood and girl into femalehood so or womanhood. So, um, so sometimes it's not accurate to go by date, but you can with the Batwa because they actually do. And also we had all seven generations. But what was amazing Thing was that this woman, she grew up in the jungle fully, right? She's been out for the last 30 years. And, uh, and she talked about how everyone was always in perfect health. Everyone she knew always just died of old age. They parasites were never an issue. They had never seen the round parasite bellies that now they're seeing in the age four and under group. Uh, even her, her daughter and her five generations after her <laughs> had never seen the parasite belly, but now they're starting to see that. And it's the exact same environment. They're just right outside the forest. They're still in the same region. So same water is collected and that kind of thing. Uh, and the change in health profile is remarkable. And yet they still have 
the most relaxed lifestyle. They still don't use electricity, right? They still don't uh, do any of the things that we do. Uh, and yet they're having all these illnesses in the younger generation. So this woman who's 120, <laughs> she does three dances for us on one day. And then the next day, you would think she'd be in bed for two weeks, right? Because she's hopping. She's actually leaping two feet above the ground. She has no arthritis at all. And uh, and you'd think she'd be in bed. And then the next day she does the dances too. And she invited me to come in and dance with her. And I did one dance and I was, I was out of breath from all that jumping. <laughs> and she, her sister and her daughter, I recorded them because I couldn't believe they weren't even panting. They were all smiling. And so then we depart from them because they were giving us, they have a thank you dance. And that's why they were dancing. Um, and so we were leaving the village and we were going up and you have to hike up a big hill to get out of the village. And, uh, and we hike up and we get up there and she, her sister and her daughter are all up there. They all beat us and they were all laughing and having fun. And yeah, so it, it's really, I, to go back to your lifestyle thing, I, I think the lifestyle is less for longevity. I think it's very important, uh, for your health. I think it's important for your longevity, but I don't think it's the solid ticket without the diet because when, when modern foods are brought in and they're not processed in the old fashioned way, and that's the issue with corn, right? Because I'm sure your listeners are like, well, corn was eaten in South America for a long time. But when corn was eaten, it, it went through a five-stage process that's very important with lye or lime. You have to remove certain anti-nutrients for it to not cause deficiencies and issues in the human body. And when the Europeans brought corn to the rest of the world, that knowledge was lost. And Tell so no one is- You just have to pop it to make it good for you. Unfortunately not. I wish, I mean, popcorn is delicious, right? I, it's delicious, but, uh, but not, no, it's not. So, so uh, you see small changes like that start to derail the health and the Vatwaya don't do the, the dairy. They love dairy, but it's not a traditional part of their diet and they don't really have much access to it. So they're not getting that protection in Greece. It's an interesting blue zone because uh, because they do a lot of the lifestyles that is uh, that are talked about as not being done in blue zone regions. For instance, <laughs> the blue zone regions are always heralded for lots of exercise, very low stress living, not smoking, not drinking too much. Now they do, they have a very relaxed lifestyle. <laughs> they are not stressed at all. And I, I don't know if I could even convey that with words. I think you'd have to go to actually see it because it's so different than what we're used to. Just very relaxed. Um, but they smoke all day. They drink every night. Uh, they don't really? get drunk. Yeah, I, I've never seen a Greek person drunk, to be honest. They but they drink. Now, so yeah. they grow their... Do they treat their cigarettes mm -hmm. kind of like their food where they grow tobacco in their yard? Yeah, they do. Uh -huh. So they're not having all the other chemicals added to it that like someone yeah. that smokes cigarettes in America would have. I wouldn't imagine. Yeah, because the bromide, I think, is really more of the issue with cigarettes. Uh, people have smoked for a very long time and not had the issues we have today. But of course, there's confounding factors, too. And the more unhealthy lifestyle things you bring in, the worse you're going to be. Whereas maybe 200 years ago, that was the only negative, right? So a human body can handle a negative, but lots of negatives and you've got an issue. But yeah, so they, they smoke, uh, they drink every day, and they don't really exercise. So, so they don't do a lot of the lifestyle things, but that stress uh, is ultimately important. I, I never see 
anyone heal if they don't get on top of their stress. In fact, I've had a couple patients that I had two particularly, I had to tell, like, if you can't let go of these issues, I can't help you. Uh, one just could not forgive her father for something. In every session, she was talking about her anger with him. And, uh, and you just can't heal a human cell when you're in a constant state of anger and stress, you're releasing too much cortisol. So the lifestyle things are very, uh, very important. But with the blue zones, I think it's less, I think it's more the diet. Interesting. Yeah, you just touched on a topic that I, I do think also mm -hmm. is super like overlooked. I know. Yes. I could speak to that myself too, where like, I, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned somebody not being able to forgive their father. I think a lot of people yeah. have trouble forgiving themselves for things, yes. for things just not being the way that they may have expected or the way they've treated someone else or, you know, something, and it could date back to childhood. And I think it's overlooked in the, the current, like, medical model in this country that that's not even it doesn't seem to ever really be addressed and mm -hmm. if your nervous system's kind of triggered by that just repetitively every day because it's kind of some unresolved issue being stored in the, the body it's going to be really hard to make legitimate long-term progress and i don't know how where, like where we go from that like i don't know how that ever gets incorporated on the mass scale where we as a population can move in a positive direction with our health. Cause I think yeah. that cripples a lot of people and really stifles progress and healing. Completely. I think it completely does. I try to get people to imagine if they're upset with someone and it, you're right. It's usually themselves because usually when we're sick, we're very angry with ourselves for not being well. Mm. We're very upset. We can't do things. We're very upset that we're missing out. We're having FOMO and we're angry at our bodies that it's not working, that it's betraying us. So a lot of the anger is usually self-directed and there's a lot of embarrassment as well. But, uh, but when it's at another person, <laughs> you can always, imagine that you're giving your health over in a handbasket because that's directly what you're doing uh, when you're upset with someone or when you're upset about something. It's, uh, it's really giving your ability to heal away. And I think if people could see it as that, they could stop right? Because then they could see it's not so important. Uh, being right isn't so important. Being angry isn't helping us. It's only hurting us. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge hurdle in illness, because as you get more sick, you tend to get more angry and upset and sad and alone and depressed and uh, forlorn. And so it's a it's a huge hurdle. But it's if you can get over it, it's one of the best things It makes your life much better, because then there's not much to be angry about. And and once you get through something really hard, like illness or forgiveness, everything else looks pretty easy, you know? So how do you, as a nutritionist, address mm -hmm. that for someone? Because when somebody comes to see you, mm -hmm. my guess is they're not really thinking about that. They're thinking yeah. about, tell me what to eat. Tell me how to Yes. Eat. <laughs> yeah. So, how so do we you, start. Like, that message from uh, when dealing with like application, how do you, what do you tell someone to do? Well, I usually, you know, a, lar a large part of my job really is walking someone through the hero's journey, 
that's really what we're doing. I'm kind of like the guide that they met along the journey and I can't do it for them, but I can tell them which way to go. And, uh, and so when I see that they're not going where they're supposed to, then I bring these aspects in and I try to get them to read certain books or listen to certain things. But I, I, I'm pretty heavy handed with the, with the mentality aspect because uh, a lot of people get very angry. They feel like it should be different than it is, or it should be faster than it is. And, uh, that's victim thinking. If you're in a victim mindset, if you've got a saboteur mindset, you're not going to get better. And my job is to get someone better. So I have to point those things out to get them along. So I try to bring in the hero's journey as a realistic picture. You know, we all think we want to be heroes, but when you actually look at what the hero's journey is, it's terrifying. You're going to go do something that no one else is willing to do, right? Fight a dragon. It's an impossible task fighting a dragon. You've got to go up a mountain all by yourself. Nobody's going with you. There's storms. It's muddy. You don't have food. It's cold. Uh, the path is winding. You have no idea how long it's going to take. And all sorts of things come out on the path that you weren't expecting. And so if you can see the hero's journey in that light, as opposed to something just a golden beacon of like, I'm awesome and I can do this. And instead, you can expect the, the bad things to come along the path. You can expect the twists and turns and the difficulty. You should expect it to be difficult. Then you're not let down. You're not upset when those things happen. And so I try to get them to see it from an archetypal standpoint, because I found very much in my own journey, I, I found if I could see what archetype was at play, whether it was like the victim or the queen or, or whatnot, or a saboteur or a child that was giving me that voice in the head that wasn't serving me, then it, it wasn't so personal. I didn't feel guilty about having those thoughts or those feelings. Instead, I could see it more uh, from the outside and address it without all the emotion. That is really beautifully said. Um, oh, I think we're going to try to wrap this up on that. That was um, really important. And I got to tell you, I'm really grateful for what you're doing and the way that you present it. I think your, your passion uh, really just kind of radiates off you very well. And I think you really Thank have you. a gift and the world is a better place that you're here doing what you're doing. If folks want to reach out to you and um, if they're dealing with something and they want that guide to point them in the right direction, how do folks go about working with you or your team and, or learning more at least? Sure. So my website is enableyourhealing.com. And when you go to the schedule site, you'll see I'm booked out for ages, but I am doing these focus sessions for certain conditions. So there's an area, instead of scheduling a new client appointment with me, you can sign up to be notified uh, for a group with your condition. And then we can kind of go on this hero's journey together. You can also work with my nutritionists as well, who I've trained by hand, who are on there too. And then you can find me on Instagram. It's uh, Mary Reddick CNC and YouTube. One day I will be uploading all of this footage that I have from all of these travels, but I have a few videos on there. And if you subscribe, then you'll see when I finally get the rest up. <laughs> that is great. Um, I, I got to touch on that real quick. So you have these, <laughs> this group model and I saw this on your website yes. and this spoke to me a little bit because um, I've, I've worked in a gym environment for years <laughs> And I definitely noticed like we focus on like uh, small group training usually. And 
folks do better in a small group than they do on their own, or many folks do. Some they really own. do. There's yeah, a, there's a tribal component of our species. It's it's like hardwired in us to have that camaraderie and that support system. So I think that's a really interesting model that I don't think I've seen other nutritionists have the way that you do. Oh, thank you. I, I actually bore that out of necessity. So I <laughs> I was working on a project and I had always done one-on-ones. I live for one-on-ones. I just love them because I get so close with my patients and we become friends and it's just great. Not enough um, hours but- in the day though. Yeah, there's not enough hours in the day. And I was working on a project and my project wasn't done when it was due. And so I was going to have to tell my patients I couldn't see them for a month. And I was like, I can't do that. So instead I put together these groups out of necessity. And then it was magic for exactly the reason you are saying. And it was so much better than I ever could have expected. I'll never go back. I see far better outcomes. People are happier. Um, Plus it really helps to have that tribe because Uh, illness is so incredibly lonely and isolating Mm -hmm. and people around us just don't know what we're going through. Our family members just never could. So yeah, the group format is the bee's knees. I I will never go back. That's cool. Um, (laughs) Let's see. Anything else you would like to touch on or share with the audience? Anything on the horizon for you or other than all this content from these trips that are coming out on your YouTube channel? (laughs) Sure. Yes, well, I just filmed Food Lies documentary with Brian Sanders, and that was just a hoot. We had the best time. Oh, we're starting a nonprofit, actually, or an organization for many of these villages. So what I was saying, uh, info info should be on my website in the next week or so. But what I was saying about these villages getting uh, schools are coming in, which is good. The kids are learning multiple languages and good for those kind of things. But the schools, unfortunately, are feeding the children their non-traditional tribal diets. So they're getting corn, beans and vegetable oil. And that's it. And that's going to affect the health. Uh, one thing I didn't talk about too much was that in all of these communities, despite the different diets, they're really in perfect health. They don't have allergies. They don't get cavities. They don't have mental disease. They have nothing. They don't even catch the infections that go around the malaria, the dengue fever, the tourists do. They don't. They're really in, it's like a fountain of health. It's like a fountain of youth for health. (laughs) And I want to maintain that, you know, so much of my life is spent reversing illness and helping people get through it. But I, I also want us to stop getting sick. And I don't want people to go through what you and I have gone through. So and we've got this opportunity where there's these villages where I can go and teach them their traditional diet so that the wisdom maintains and they don't lose that. And then we can provide cows and goats and sheep or whatever it is for that traditional culture, what their food is is to the children. So we're going to be providing cows and goats and those kind of things for the schools. Yeah, I think it'll be really great. So that'll be cows for kids. We've got the domain. I'm working on the website. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And the great thing. And then we'll share that with the audience when it's ready. That would be awesome. Yeah, I think it's just let's stop people getting sick to begin with. (laughs) Yes. Well, Mary, uh, thanks again. And for the listeners out there, I really appreciate you tuning in. I'm always grateful for your listening. And I hope you got some value out of today's conversation. I surely did. Mary surely does have a gift. And I'm just grateful that she shared it with us today. So I hope you all have a great day and stay tuned for more episodes. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again for listening today. I hope you got some value out of that episode. I surely did. I really enjoyed it. 
I love listening to Mary teach. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there and it's delivered with such a delightful passion. I really like to learn from her and I look forward to learning more in the future. In fact, Mary mentioned after the episode her willingness to kind of show our audience how she does her thing. So I'm going to follow up with her and maybe we're going to do an episode where she takes my situation and shows the audience how she works through deciding how to help me with the tools that she has. So I'm really excited about that process, not just to help you guys, but for selfish reasons. I'm always looking to learn more and clearly she has a lot that we can learn from. And I am grateful that she's done all the work kind of traveling the world, seeing what other cultures are doing and finding what works and what the thriving cultures are really relying on and then how to integrate that into our lives. So I'm really excited to learn more. By the way, if you are enjoying these episodes, please give us a review on your player. And if you're looking for a way to support the Mindful Movement, I think the best way is to join our membership. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's, uh, it's a really exciting place where we're building a community and we're doing a monthly live call that is a lot of fun where you get some, really some playtime and some nourishment from Sarah and I, where you're gonna go through a live gentle movement and stretching and meditation practice where Sarah will be there to guide you and, uh, and we could all do it together live. So if that's of interest to you, check the link for the membership. If you have any questions about that or about this episode, shoot them my way. If it's something I can't answer, I'll do my best to get Mary to help us with the answer to your questions. I hope you enjoyed and I hope you have a terrific day.